We are in Samuel together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We'll pick up where we left off last week. That's in verse 23. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 23 is where you will find our text this morning, this narrative. There are Bibles in the back. I cannot put up every verse. It's way too much. So hopefully you have a Bible. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the back by the sound booth. Um, if you don't own one, keep it. Um, it it's ours, uh, yours from us to you. 1 Samuel chapter 14. So children, you're dismissed for Children's Church as we look at this passage together. Now, if you remember, quickly bring you up to speed, Israel has a first king. The first king of Israel, and his name is Saul. The king they wanted was not the man that God would want for them. He gave him a job description. Remember back in Deuteronomy 17, he said, look for a king who would have a Bible in his hand, the Bible in his heart, the word of God on his lips, and a king who would fear God, keep his statutes and his laws, and hear and heed to the word of God. They decided that they knew better than God. It's never in a good place to think you know better than God. They decided they knew better God and wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted an earthly king that will judge. They wanted an earthly king that will fight their battles. God was not good enough for them. It was a rejection of God, a form of idolatry. And if you remember from back in chapter 8, when they demanded this type of king, the prophet Samuel brought them together and warned them. If that's the king you guys want, you don't want to obey God. You don't want a man after God's own heart. But if you want your own king, let me just warn you on what kind of king this king is going to be. And he warns them, chapter 8, verse 10. That kind of king, the king you want, will take your sons and point them to his chariots, to his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself the king, commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. He, this king that you want, will take your daughters to be perfumers and cookers and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards to give to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyard and give it to his officers. He will take, he will take, he will take your male and your female servants. He will take the tenth of your flock. And you, Samuel warns them, shall be his slaves. Like, where do I sign up for that? But the Israelites were not impressed, and they refused to heed Samuel's warning. So God told Samuel, if you remember, to go ahead, obey their voice, give them the king they wanted. God ultimately has the choice, but God's choice of Saul is in part God's judgment on the people of Israel for their wrong motive and foolish decision for the kind of king that they wanted. And after a brief victorious battle, Samuel anoints Saul as God commanded as the people wanted. Sovereignty of God, man's responsibility. And then Samuel, excuse me, Saul goes into a battle in chapter 11 uh, against the Ammonites. And what happens? Samuel again calls the people together after this battle. And they win. And he warns the people again. Family, that's grace. God's warning, God's warning, God's warning, God's warning is grace. God doesn't owe us a warning. And God warns them through the prophet, through the word of God, through the prophet of Samuel. He warns them, and he says in chapter 11, listen, fear the Lord, serve him, obey his voice, don't rebel. And if you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord, it'll go well with you. But if you don't obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of God, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, you and your king. Do wickedly, and you shall be swept away, both you and your king. You have another warning. 
And as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, we'll see now if the king heeds the warning, the grace of God being brought to him. Our narrative this morning is a pickup of the next battle, the battle of the Philistines. Saul and Samuel, excuse me, Saul, Samuel had left. Uh, Jonathan and Saul now are fighting the Philistines. If you remember, it began with Jonathan, King Saul's son, when he defeated the garrison, a military outpost of the Philistines that were at Geba, chapter 13, verse 3. And after the defeat of the Philistines in that battle, they became more aggressive, if you remember. They, they, had, they mustered up thousands of soldiers to fight against Israel. And at that point, even though they had won the first battle, at that point they mustered thousands of people and everybody started fleeing. Many people ran into caves and under rocks and hiding themselves. And if you remember, it was then that, that Saul was told by Samuel, go to Gilgal, wait seven days for me. The prophet of the Lord will come to you in seven days and give you direction. I'll give you the word of God. I'll tell you what God declares. Saul didn't wait. Saul seeing all his people fleeing. Saul got nervous. Saul began to fear. Saul began to take matters into his own hands. And he offers up the sacrifices. And Samuel tells him, that was a foolish thing. You should have waited for me as God has directed you through me. And the consequence is chapter 13, verse 14. The kingdom, Saul, shall not continue. Your kingdom, your lineage, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. King David, ultimately Jesus. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And in chapter 13, again, verse 15, we saw that the prophet of God makes that declaration and the word of God and the prophet of God, the word of God to God's people departs one way and Saul goes another way toward the Philistines to go into battle. We said that was a a clear sign that the word of God was departing while the king of God, uh, the king of Israel was going to fight the Philistines. Last week, in the midst of this, it looks like the word of God has departed. We see a man, his name is Jonathan, Saul's son, a man of faith. Last week, we noticed that Israel was outnumbered. They were outgunned. There was a huge military deficit. But yet, he and his unnamed armor bearer take on 20 men by faith and kill those 20 men in and, and what is a half an acre of land. And remember from last week, a panic struck the, the enemy camp. And as they were panicking over this, the, the, over this battle that Jonathan and the armor bearer killing 20 people, the Lord saw it necessary to just shake the earth a little bit. Easy for him to do. And the earthquake happened, and everybody was just freaking out. And during this confusion, Saul's army came. People inside the Philistine camp that were Israelites fought against them. People that were hidden in caves came and fought against them. Of course, Rambo, as I said last week, and his armor bearer fought against them. And Israel wins. Israel defeats the Philistines. What seemed to be almost impossible or totally impossible. And look at chapter 14, excuse me, 13, 14, verse 23. Chapter 14, verse 23, as we ended last week. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Not the army, not Saul, not Jonathan, although he did the battle. Ultimately, who gets the glory? The Lord. It is the Lord that saved the Israel that day. So, it saved Israel that day. So, as that closes from last week, true to character, we see the king of Israel, Saul, only concerned himself and pushes the people 
as it's said in our day, between a rock and a hard place. And we'll see what happens. Three movements, simple. First is King Saul makes a rash oath or a rash vow. We'll see who make up stuff that's going to be detrimental to him and the community. Number two, we'll see this religious veil. I think Saul is a religious man, but he has no relationship with God. And third, we'll see the redemptive vindication. We'll see the redeeming work of God's people at the end. So number one, the Lord saved Israel that day, verse 23, verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Verse 29. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistine has not been great. Notice the contrast. Between 23, the Lord saved Israel that day, 24, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. They were faint that day. What, what happened between verse 23 and verse 24? Saul happened between those two verses. God brought the victory, but Saul brought distress. After a stunning miraculous victory brought about by the Lord, the king makes everyone take an oath. His vow is that anyone who eats food until he is avenged from his enemies will be cursed. Now the verb, look here, hard-pressed means to be oppressed, means to be driven to exhaustion. And ironically, if you look at chapter 13, verse 6, it's the same Hebrew verb, Israel being hard-pressed, they were hard-pressed because of the enemies. The Philistines were pressing them. And now, it's not the enemy that's pressing them. It's their own king. You see the contrast of what the narrator is trying to show us. D.R. Davis, in his commentary, writes, Saul shows a strange ability to turn deliverance into distress. Don't you love people like that? Things are going great. Oh, things just went down the tubes. It is a foolish vow. It, 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 it hinders the Israelite soldiers. They were hungry. They had pushed back their enemy. And now they're in retreat. The enemy's in retreat. Why not? Why not get some food? Why not get some food so they can renew their strength? Notice the enemy. Notice who the enemy is. What, is that? what does Saul say? My avenging. My enemy. Not the Lord's enemy. Not, not, not the Lord's av- uh, vengeance. Now, I think Saul is... M- Concern not here for the Lord's honor or the honor of God or the, or the glory of God. He's not even caring much about the welfare of the people that he's been commanded to lead. Tells him, don't eat. 
And, and you, again, you cannot help the contrast between the king's words and his son, the man of faith. Jonathan 14, 6 says, maybe the Lord, maybe the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And now you have Saul saying, cursed be the man. Really? Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, until I am avenged on my enemies. Family, God does not set aside his glory or share his glory with anyone. It is the supreme work of God. And we need to be careful. The leaders, leaders in, in, your, in the church, leaders in your home, leaders in your community groups, we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to overburden the people in which we are called to lead. So much so that they fail to glorify God because of our agenda. That's a scary thought. We want to hear the voice of God and lead people in love. When I was taken in my Bible school, in my Bible training, one of the prophets, was, and I, he said it, and I'll, I'll never forget it. And he leaned over to the soon-becoming pastors, and he said, Pastors, feed your sheep. Don't beat your sheep. Feed them. Love them. Care for them. That's for the home too, right, guys? Moms, dads, Ephesians 6, fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The text tells us that the people were implicated. Look at verse 24. None of the people had tasted food. They bought into this vow. They were under an oath. One of the things that armies would do in that day, and you probably do it today, is when they conquer a land, they take what's theirs. They're not like, hey, but you guys are leaving. Come pack your stuff. Then you can go. No, they overtake the land and they take all the property, all the things, that, including the food, whatever was valuable, valuable for their own. But not King Saul. He, King Saul, no, he wants, to, he wants to bind them with an oath. But along comes Jonathan, who didn't hear about the vow. I didn't, I didn't hear about this oath. You gotta, why, why didn't the king's son hear the oath? Remember we said there's a little friction between father and son already, we could see. Why didn't he hear? We don't know. But fast food, you know, driving, McDonald's didn't exist. So he's like, well, there's some money on the ground. Been fighting all day. I just killed 20 men barehandedly, like, you know, with a sword or whatever he did. It's like, you know, hand-to-hand battle. I'm, I'm hungry. He dips his stick into the ground, and he eats, and it says his eyes became bright. I don't think anything miraculous there. I think he was just hungry, and his continence shined. You should see my face when I'm hungry and I eat. I'm the happiest can be. My wife's laughing like she like you. You ain't kidding. Don't be around him when he's not. <laughs> Honey's a great source of nourishment, loaded with sugar. Back in the day, in high school days, I was I was trying to make uh, the wrestling team, and uh, the guy that was my weight was great. I really stunk, so I had one choice, and that is to lose weight to get on the team. So I'm just losing weight, losing weight, losing weight. And, you know, I'm a little bit around today, but I was really skinny back then. And, um, you know, weak, not eating, spitting, and just dropping weight. And when you step on that scale, weigh in a couple hours before the match, man, you make weight. First thing we did was right to the locker room, man. Big jaw honey, waiting right in the locker room. A couple of bars of uh, chocolate bars and a big thing of honey. We just get ready for the match, getting that strength. That's, a, that's what Jonathan was doing. And once, once he ate the food, then someone tells him, oh, uh, your father made an oath. Verse 28, the people were faint. They're watching him. They're like, we're really hungry. 
I see you eating. I was just here to tell you, you know, we're physically and emotionally drained, but your father made a vow, absolutely unnecessary vow. Everyone knew it. Jonathan is the only one that spoke it. Look at verse 29. Jonathan said, really? My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of his honey? How, how much better if the people had eaten freely of the spoil of their enemies that they found? I've never had a leadership over a military regime, but I would imagine when, you're, when, you're, when your people battle all day long, you want to give them something to eat. Now, commentators, I was talking with Frank earlier, commentators are, over, are, are in a different place here. Some say, you know what, Jonathan misspoke. He should have never spoke. It kind of just helped the Israelites disobey. God will see that. Or, or maybe it was just Saul's rash vow. We don't know. Everyone's responsible for their own sin. But Jonathan does speak up, right, wrong, or indifferent, and it is a silly vow that he's made. It's a silly decision, a foolish decision on Saul's part. It's not something that God required. You read the Old Testament law. There's nothing that says you must fast after winning a battle, thus saith the Lord, right? No, this was conceived and concocted by Saul, an apparent effort to try to either win the battle, win, win God's uh, favor. We don't really know. But he calls for a silly, rash vow. I mean, back in chapter 13, he refused to obey God. He had no confidence with God. He wasn't waiting on God. And now he's faced with his enemies and he concocts a foolish, idiotic plan to save himself. I think even the narrator wants us to see that because God has already told the Israelites that the promised land was filled with what? Milk and honey. There's honey on the ground. I mean, that's the good providence of God for the people of God who won the victory against God's people. They needed nourishment. But Saul calls for a fast. I think Saul's being religious. I think Saul's being religious without a relationship with God. And according to Jonathan, the defeat of the Philistines would have been much greater, verse 30. For now the defeat among the Philistines had not been great. He's playing religion. Let's call for a fast. And puts his people in a bind and in a vow. A man by the name of David Kuzik, he's a pastor of Calvary Chapel Church. And he says, he gives us a couple of reasons why the vows were really stupid, kind of succinctly. And I'll, I'll just give them to you if you want. You could talk about them in community group. Maybe we'll put it on the discussion guide. Number one, the vow was no good. Number one, Saul's focus and his motive was wrong. His focus and his motive was wrong. Saul placed the people of Israel under a foolish vow, not for the glory of God. He's not seeking the face of God. It was for his own glory, a sense of, of spirituality without a relationship. Focus and motive was wrong. Two, Saul's basis of authority was wrong. It wasn't that God spoke. We'll see that God isn't even talking to him. And that's the definition of legalism. Let me tell you the definition of, uh, one of the definitions of legalism is when my opinion, when my opinion becomes someone else's obligation, I think you do. Focus and motive was wrong. Base of authority was wrong. The vow was wrong. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. You have a little bit of honey because you're hungry, dead. Let's kill him. I mean, does that fit the crime? Absolutely not. It was the wrong time. Their vow was made at a wrong time. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time for everything. A born to die, to plant, to uproot, to kill, to heal, to weep, to laugh. A time for war, a time for peace. Listen, family, there's a time to eat and there's a time to fast. Now is not the time to fast, right? 
We, there's nothing wrong with fasting, but if you have just recovering from open heart surgery, like, I think I'll fast for four days. No, don't do that. Eat. Get nourishment, right? Wrong motive, not a right authority. Punishment doesn't fit the crime. Timing was terrible, and the wrong results, really. What they needed, the men needed on a day, was food and faith, not discouragement or distress. Feed your people. Don't beat your people, right? Remember, you've got to be careful what you ask for. You've got to be careful for the oaths and the vows that you make. Jesus said, let you yes be yes, you know me no. No matter how rash and foolish this vow, this oath was, it was binding. And the people knew it. And it resulted, and the, the results were disastrous. The rash vow. Look at the religious vow, verse 30. They struck down the Philistines that day. So they, they, they've got this fast going on from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were now very faint. 31, the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, calves, and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating the blood with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. Look at verse 35. And then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So the enemy, the, they're pushing more against the enemy from Michmash to Ajalon. It's about 15 or 20 miles west. And the people now aren't faint. They're really faint. Only this time when they're in there, they're, they're taking the booty, right? They're taking the spoils uh, they, they, quickly. And they do not, look what it says, they do not prepare the food according to the law of God. They're eating meat with the blood in it. I don't think it means it was raw. Because when I first read that, I'm thinking, really? It means that they were not doing the sacrifice and the draining of the blood according to the Mosaic law. That's what it means. So, obediently, the Israelites comply with Saul's senseless vow not to eat until the evening, not to eat until the enemy was defeated. But now, it's nighttime. The enemy was routed, which means they're, they're released from, the, from this vow, but they're so hungry they ignore the commands of God. They ignore the commands of God, and they eat meat with blood found in it, Leviticus 17 and 19. Notice the contrast here. It's, it's stark. Jonathan unknowingly broke Saul's oath by eating honey, and Saul's men now are knowingly breaking God's command by eating meat with blood still in it. And you know what the sad part is? The sad part is the Israelites fear more of the king, the earthly king. They don't want to eat. They don't want to step over the vow. They're bound by that vow. So they, they obey Saul, and what they do, they disobey God. They disobey God. We have to be careful. We should not disrespect man and those authority over us. I'm not saying that. But our ultimate fear, reverence, awe, majestic worship is not man. It's God alone. Saul in his pride, insecurity, and foolishness set the people up on a crash course with sin. 
they're, they're, they're fearful, they're, they're famished, and they foolishly sin against the Lord. Now, I'm not excusing their sin. No one's responsible for sin except the one who's committing the sin, right? Matthew 18, though, this is what Jesus said. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. They were hungry. For it is necessary that temptation come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe to the one who sets up the temptation to come. King Saul is the one who set this whole thing up in the first place. And now he's saying, look, you're acting treacherously, faithlessly. Come and slaughter the animals properly. And he builds an altar to himself. It was the first altar, verse 35, that he built to the Lord. Again, I think that's a clue. It's hard to read into his action, but I think it's a clue. Uh, And you guys could talk about this in your community groups. I, I think it's a clue saying it was the first altar he ever built. In other words, his failure, Saul's failure, was to be truly devoted to the Lord. There's an appearance of faith without authentic faith, right? There's an appearance of trust without an authentic trust. Why does the narrator say, yeah, Saul built an altar here, but... Just so you know, he never did one before. Been a king. Spiritually sensitive Israelite leaders built altars. First Samuel 7, Gideon in Judges 6, David in 2 Samuel. I think the point is, it's the first time he's done it, which means it's a negative comment. He's never done one before. You can always tell a tree that's rooted in the ground by, by the fruit that it bears, Right? Cut down that tree at Christmas time and bring it in the house and tell me what happens two weeks later. Likewise, Saul did not bear fruit of his victory to a true righteousness because he was not planted in the Lord. And this is what I'm starting to see in Saul. And, and I hope it's not true of anyone here of you. Saul wants to come to God on his terms. I'll come to the Lord. I'll obey God. I will, I will follow the Lord as long as it's my terms, my goals, my dreams. He's relying on religion, playing religion, and it's seen by so much of his inconsistency. One commentator wrote this, and I thought it was a very good uh, quote. He says this, one can hardly call this sincere worship, this altar that's been built, either on the part of the Israelites or on the part of Saul. It is merely a way of sanctifying the satisfaction of the appetites of these soldiers so that they don't sin anymore. And when we are told this is his first altar that Saul ever built, We're not impressed either. Does it take this kind of crises for Saul to seek to worship his God? Does he only build altars in times of crises? I would not call this a holy moment in Israel's history. They are simply, listen, covering their bets, minimizing the damage caused by sin. Sin predisposed by Saul and practiced by his soldiers, end quote. That's a good objection Uh, objective view of what's going on i i think at this point saul has yet to confess the silly and stupid and harsh vow that he has made he has hungry men men who are exhausted from eating all day and from not eating all day and then they go on this crazy mad frenzy to fill their bellies let me me read to you a passage from the new testament mark chapter 7 Jesus confronted by the religious leaders, those who show external religious works, deeds. He says to them, no, they say to him, 
religious leaders say to Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You don't wash as you ought to. And he said to them, well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. You leave the commandment of God, he tells them, and hold to the tradition, tradition of men. And Jesus then said to them, you have a fine way. <laughs> you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That is the usual consequences, right, of legalism. When my opinion becomes someone else's obligations, we are then breaking God's commands so that we obey man's commands. The rabbis in that day were so caught up in their law-keeping, they would argue back and forth, and they were debating whether or not a man had the right to take and carry out his wooden leg if his house was on fire on the Sabbath. Like, really? In that day, they would argue about spitting. They said, you could spit on the ground. I'm glad. You could spit on the ground, but if you scuff it with your sandals, that's a little agricultural work going on, and that's taboo. You can't do that on the Sabbath. Saul is caught up in the trap of legalism and performance by making rash and silly oaths that just get himself and everybody implicated, his army around him, in trouble. Family, unless our life is built on the grace of God, the love of God, I think we'll always find ways of making silly and foolish decisions when it comes to religion. Religion is, just so we're straight, and we understand when I use that term, religion is, I obey, I do, I work, I follow the commands, I do what God wants me to do, and therefore God will bless me and he'll love me and accept me. That's religion. The gospel is Jesus Christ has made the way. He has done it by his perfect life. He has done it from the cross of Christ. He accepts me and loves me because of what Jesus did, and therefore, in his love for me already, I will love him in return and, and obey and follow him. There's a big difference between the two. One is religion and one is the gospel. And Samuel seems to have gotten, excuse me, Saul has seemed to get it backwards. And you see that from the life of, of, of inconsistency and selfishness. He pretends to seek God's will, but Saul is not wholly committed to the Lord. And these two men, and you need to see, you'll see this more as we go on. These two men, Jonathan and his father, King Saul, are in contrast, are antithetical to one another. King Saul is a man of what the Bible calls the flesh. Jonathan is a man what the Bible calls a faith. It is faith versus the flesh. When you, if you never heard that term used, the flesh, the NIV has the word sinful nature. I'm not really fond of that, but the flesh could mean the body, but when the flesh is used in verses of faith, it is the part of us that lives wholly committed to ourselves, right? That, that, that it, it does not do what God wants us to do. It's a corrupted nature. It's, it's weakness. It's depravity. It's the unspiritual life of a person. Its disposition is only for sin, it's the total person living outside of the will of God, apart from the word of God, apart from an illuminating spirit of God. That's the flesh. Anthony Telston, he's a Church of England uh, years ago. The, he says this about the flesh. The flesh is the outlook, he says the outlook of the flesh is the outlook oriented toward the self, that which pursues, pursues its own ends in self-sufficient independence of God. All of us are born that way, in the flesh. Saul is in the flesh. 
Jonathan is a man of faith, is a man of trust. John Piper writes this, the flesh is the ego which feels an emptiness and uses the resources in its own power to try to fulfill it. I'll do this on my own. I got this. I, I don't, I'm not going to hear and obey God. I don't want to do anything that you want me to do. It's selfish. It's self-centered. It's for your own glory. That's all. So you have the rash vow, you have the religious vow, and look at the thirdly, you have the redemptive vindication. Verse 36, and Saul said, let us go down, okay, it, it, it's, it, it's nighttime, let us go down by night, it's, it's dark, let's plunder them until the morning, let's go down there and continue the battle, we're not going to leave nobody alive. And they said, do whatever's good to you, right, the, the, the army's like, all right, whatever's good. Then the priest speaks up, look what he says in verse 36, before we go down there, let us draw near to God. It's a good idea. And Saul said, okay, I'll inquire of God. Lord, shall I go down to the Philistines? Will you give them into my hands? But God did not answer him that day. Hmm. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know, and see how this sin has arisen today. The Lord's not speaking to me, must be sin. For the Lord who lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Everybody's like this. No one's saying nothing. Then he said to all of Israel, you shall be on one side. I and Jonathan and my son on the other side. He's dividing the people in two, him and his son and all the people. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you again. Therefore, Saul said, oh Lord, God of Israel, verse 41, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in my son Jonathan, oh Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped, chose on that side. Verse 42, then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. See what's happening? The king's like, let's go down there. Let's continue the press against the enemy. And if it wasn't for the priest intervening and saying, maybe we should seek the Lord on this, uh, O king, Saul would have never done it. Again, just another sign of Saul's independence, wanting to do things his own way. Okay, let's consult the Lord. Lord, silence. Lord, are we going to win this battle? Not a word. Silence isn't always golden. You know, they say silence is golden. Not always. Not when you're seeking the Lord. Because silence, in this case, I'm convinced, is divine displeasure. That's why God's not answering Saul. Someone sinned. Someone had to sin. It's, it's certainly not my fault. Who sinned among us? And the king boldly vowed again. Whoever was sinned, whoever broke this vow... Even if it's Jonathan, verse 39, he will die. For as the Lord lives, another oath, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, he shall surely die. I don't think he was really thinking it was Jonathan. Right? But humility says, I've made some, this has gone too far. I'm acknowledging wrong. I'm repenting of my sin. Or let me kill my son. Right? Are we willing to destroy our family? Are we destroying our marriage? Are we willing to destroy your work, your reputation in the eyes of the world rather than confess and repent sin? So what does he do? <coughs> he goes Las Vegas on him. Urim and Thummim. <laughs> Two stones inside the breastplate of the high priest. We're not really sure exactly what, it, what, what they did, but something like rolling dice, 
the lights, uh, Thummim and uh, Urim and Thummim mean light and perfection. And they were stones and they would ask God and they would pull out the stone, light and dark, yes or no. Proverbs 16 says the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And in the Old Testament, God would reveal his will sometimes through this, through this way. Obviously, before we had a, the scriptures, the New Testament, the pouring out of his spirit on the day of Pentecost, God would speak to Israel in that way at times. Look at verse 43. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. Jonathan said, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff. Here I am. I will die. Giving up kind of easy, I think. Anyway, Jonathan's man of faith is willing to surrender to his father. Look at verse 44. Saul says to him, God do so to me. Now he's looking at his firstborn son. God do so to me. And more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. If there was a problem between mom, uh, father and son, a little problem, it's not a little anymore. I'm like, hey, he's got to be like, really? Dad? Jonathan is guilty of eating after the vow that he did not know was made. And this guy is full, the king, of stupid vows. If there was only a small rift, it's huge. And the people said to Saul, I don't think so. Look at it, says, verse 45. Shall, uh, shall Jonathan die? They had enough. Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Jonathan? Far from it. As the Lord lives, I got a vow for you now, King Saul. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he, Jonathan, has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed. NIV rescued. The word is ransomed. Jonathan, so that he did not die. See that? When Jonathan proves to be the guilty one, Saul is faced with the revolt in his own army. Saul is willing to uphold his foolish decree, maintain his wrong-headed, wrong-hearted oath, even if it meant sacrificing the man of faith, <laughs> his own son. And what did they do? They got their own oath. It's not gonna happen. He lost total respect for his arm. The people lost total respect for him at that point. They've had enough. And the irony is that without Jonathan's hero heroic lead, there would be no victory in the first place. Uh, their silence protected Jonathan up to now. They weren't saying a word about anything. They knew who the one who had eaten of the honey. But they were quiet. But now they take matters into their own hands and save Jonathan's life. They ransomed the one who had brought them salvation that day. It was Jonathan, listen, it was Jonathan working with God who rescued Israel. And now Israel standing up to Saul rescuing Jonathan. Do you see that? That's the contrast. That's what, that's what we're seeing here. Look at verse 47 and 48. Summary of, uh, of military career. Saul's career, 47 and 48. Verse 49, the sons of Saul, the firstborn Jonathan, his other sons, his daughters, uh, Merib and, and Michael. Verse 50, his wife, the commander of his army, was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Verse 51, some more stuff. Now look at verse 52. At the very last verse, it says, there was fighting against the Philistines, kind of a recap, all the days of Saul. Now, but I want you to see something, that last sentence. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to what? 
himself. Remember where we started? This is that verse where it's like, I told you so. You want Samuel to show up and go, I told you so. He's taking what he wants. He's making slaves of who he wants. He's being attached himself to those who will help him. That's the point. Strong man, he attached himself. That's a picture of sin. Slavery in the Old Testament, when you see slavery, it is a picture of sin. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Listen, slavery to sin is a mindset, an affection, an attitude, a disregard for God, his law. Slaves to sin to those who live in the habitual, persistent, relentless practice and an attitude of lawlessness. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want. Now, family, I want you to watch this. Keep your Bibles open. The reason the Jewish people did not eat meat with blood in it is because God had given them the blood to atone for their sins. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood is the symbolic Blood is a symbol of life. The emphasis on atonement is not simply the blood that flows through the veins, but on the bloodshed, the life ending that makes atonement for one's life. They knew that. This substitutionary, this vicarious nature of the sacrifice is that life was given for life. The life of the victim for the life of the offerer. The life of the innocent victim for the life of the sinful offerer. They would get a blameless lamb, a blameless animal, and and pour out their sin on that blameless as a, a way of symbolically saying our guilt is on that lamb, and they would sacrifice the lamb. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Jewish people knew that. They knew that atonement for sin was necessary and it was the only way that the people of God could be redeemed, ransomed. Little sidetrack. Stay with me. A couple more minutes. Genesis 22. Abraham, go and sacrifice your firstborn. Go up to the mountain and sacrifice Isaac. Do you know why he did that? If it was, Abraham, take your wife or take your daughter or take your maidservant, he would have said, this ain't God. Why did, Jonathan, why did Abraham take his firstborn? Because God made it clear all throughout the Old Testament, the firstborn belongs to me. And if you want to keep your firstborn, he must be ransomed. Abraham knew that, Je- uh, that Adam sinned, and ever since then, your firstborn is the, the prodigy, is the, personal, it's the personified of the family and the generation and generation of sin and sin. And sin creates a debt that's owed. So when God told Abraham, bring your son up, you know what he was saying? It's time. The debt of sin for you, it's time. Bring up your son. Of course, God spared his son. That's why Abraham did it. Numbers 8.15 Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours, the priest. Nevertheless, because you don't sacrifice children, nevertheless, the firstborn of the man you shall redeem, and their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them, you shall fix at five shekels in silver. Abraham knew that. 
when God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt, remember what the last plague was? I'm coming down, I'm gonna kill the firstborn. Sin debt is owed and my justice will come down and unless you take a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb and put the blood over its doorsteps, if you do that, you'll take shelter under the substitutionary sacrifice of the lamb. I will redeem you and I will pass over you but if you don't, your firstborn will die. He didn't say you're an Israelite, therefore, don't worry. When God's justice comes down, it comes down on everyone. But that day, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son, and God redeemed them. And now listen to what Moses says, Exodus 6, when he speaks of this redemption. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you up out of the burdens of Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, let me tie this together. The people of God knew. The army knew that eating blood was forbidden because it was given by God to atone for their sin. Sinners need ransom. Sinners need redemption. And in our narrative, the people of God ransomed one man, Jonathan, but ultimately pointing to the one man who would ransom the people of God. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jonathan brought about their salvation by his life. He was ransomed so that he could live. Jesus brought about our salvation, our redemption by his death. Jesus is the true and the better Jonathan. Hebrews chapter 9, Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy place where the Shekinah glory is, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This bread, this juice, this cup, this communion table represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we come together, we partake of the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit uses this this symbolic message that Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus was crucified and died in our place. He is our spiritual nourishment. This table serves to strengthen our faith in Christ Jesus. Faith, that mystical union of 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 our trust and our oneness with Christ. And the Holy Spirit uses the communion table, the gathering together around the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, to strengthen our faith. Listen, to strengthen our faith, to confirm our faith, to increase our faith. That's what the table's all about. Remembering the ransom. And therefore our communion is a communion of the total person of Christ, his body that was taken, uh, that was broken, his blood that was shed, not the literal body, not the literal blood, but he was broken for us. He was, blood was shed for our redemption, our salvation. And as we gather this morning, the band's gonna play some music. We're gonna remember, we're gonna memorialize the sacrifice, but in a very real sense, Jesus himself, by and through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, he's in heaven, but by the Spirit, he's inviting you to come. Come, have you trusted Christ? Do you believe on Christ? Come, strengthen your faith, grow in your faith, confirm your faith. By taking the bread, his body that was broken, the cup, his blood that was shed. Using an illustration, uh, using the sun as an illustration, John Calvin said this, that Christ is present influentially. The sun remains in the heaven, yet its warmth and light are present on the earth. So 
the radiance of the Spirit conveys to us the communion of Christ, end quote. Jesus is our ransom. He ransomed the people of God. We see that in Revelation. The band's gonna come up. We're gonna spend time confessing our sins, agreeing with God, repenting of our sins. That means turning from our sins. Then we celebrate. We don't stay there. We celebrate the redemption offered to us by the perfect life, the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, here's my last prayer. May all of us this morning be strengthened in our faith. Father, that's our prayer. May all of us this morning be strengthened in our faith. Lord, there may be some who don't know you here that, have, that, that need your revealing work. Lord, show them their sin. Show them the Savior, that Jesus Christ died an atoning sacrifice, absorbing the wrath we deserve, died and was buried in three days for our justification, rose from the dead. Forgiveness is offered to those who call upon him. And Lord, those who know you, help us to grow. Help us as we confess and repent and celebrate the mercy and the gospel. Let us re- just preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And we look to the cross and we see how desperately wicked and, and sinful and unable to overcome that. But maybe look back at the cross and see your love and your mercy and your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Strengthen us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.